I like that. Don't make the black kids angry. Yeah. Why don't we start off with some big news? Bigger than I thought it was going to be. So I may have mentioned on this podcast a few times over the last month that I was working on my audiobook of White Girl Bleed a lot. And uh, sometimes when you do an audiobook, if you're not an audiophile, an audio professional, which I am not, a little bit of a crapshoot because as opposed to a podcast, there are lots and lots of dials you have to set. Lots of things have to be just right. You can't have any barking dogs, fire engine, police sirens, airplanes landing, which some people say adds a little charm to this podcast. Uh, so I'm grateful for everybody's tolerance. But the, whenever you hear that, all that means is I'm out on my back porch and I don't want to retreat to a quiet room. I'd rather sit out there and smoke cigars and let it flow. Come on. Don't. I like that. Don't. I like that. Don't. I like that. Don't make the black kids angry. Ah, yeah. Now, you don't get to do that on an audiobook. They don't want any of the sounds in there. They don't want any little crazy thing happening. If, you, if they do it, if you do it, They'll kick it back to you and say, fix it. So I did it about a month ago. They kicked it back once. I had to do a little this, do a little that, gave it to them. Then all of a sudden, on Halloween, they put it up. They put it up, and then they send you an email, so you might not even know it's up for a while. So, I don't know. I, I, you know, I used to be some kind of marketing guru, believe it or not. I guess I still am on some level. Um, but... I didn't really do much for it. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've mentioned it on this podcast yet. Uh, I mentioned it on uh, one of my videos, and I mentioned it on email, and I mentioned it on Twitter, I mentioned it at Minds.com, I mentioned it on Facebook. Um, But, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, I didn't know what... I don't know if anybody was still going to be interested in White Girl Bleed a lot since the book didn't exactly come out yesterday. So I started telling people about it. Again, this was not any kind of form of rollout. I just pretty much say, hey, said, hey, it's out there for you commuters, you truck drivers, you people uh, People who like listening to audiobooks have been asking me for a long time about where's White Girl Bleed a lot on audio. I put it out, and, <laughs> and now people went crazy. They're downloading it like crazy. So thank you guys for all that. I'll throw some numbers at you. Last I looked, it was ranked in the it was ranked like number for all the audiobooks in this entire planet. That was ranked number 1400. And I'll just tell you this. If you write a book where your book is going to sit there at 1400 and uh your audiobook and your Kindle and your paper and your hardback and your paperback, if that sits there at 1400, you're going to be doing just fine. I guarantee it. So a lot of people bought that book. It was uh, rated the number one new release in African American demographics. It was rated. It's it's and it's still there. Number three on all the media books on Amazon. This is the number three uh, audio book for all media books on Amazon right now, and it's number six for African American demographics. Whatever the hell that means. And number six in African-American history. Take that, Brittany Cooper. Take that, uh, what's eloquent rage. Take that, blaming Trump, because the, the lovely ladies have, this, have a little problem pushing themselves away from the dinner table. 
So I'm very proud of that. I hope you will share the, the pride that I feel with this because we're doing this together. I mean, I was wondering where I was going to put this. Why don't we put it right here? I get these, I've been getting these lately, like once a week. People have just been sending me these kind of obscure YouTube videos where people are doing a victory dance every time somebody kicks me off of a platform. And this, this is one is when this, and this little sound clip comes from one of the fellas who's celebrating my demise, what he thought was my demise at YouTube. But at Mar as, Mark, as Mark Twain used to say, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. To my surprise, one Colin Flaherty channel has been terminated by YouTube. Now, I made a video about Colin Flaherty before stating about how he's basically brainwashing the non-black public into thinking that black people are such a big issue and that they're responsible for all the crime and basically just, you know, dragging the black race through the mud as the criminal race. But um, even though a lot of the stuff he shows... Even though a lot of this, the videos and stories he covers are actually true, it's the way that he presents it as if the black people are always at fault. Basically, he's able to justify white supremacy regardless. In either case, uh, a lot of his supporters, a lot of his fans, they believe that he's doing nothing wrong. And I called it out a long time ago. Colin Flaherty is a propagandist, an anti-black propagandist. And finally, today, January 5th, January 6th, 2018, YouTube agreed with me and a bunch of other black people who probably worked to get that channel taken down. So if you see, if you saw that video, you would see him grinning and gloating. And this is like the greatest thing that ever happened to him because Later on in the video, he also talked about how he and his friends had been reporting me. And, uh, well, you know, that's pretty much how simple it is to get somebody kicked off YouTube. Just write up some letters saying Colin's a bad person, writes about bad stuff, blah, 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 blah. And I think we should be proud of that, too. Because all of you guys listening to this right now, and I'm, I, I'm never quite sure how much overlap there is between this audience and my videos and my books and my articles, I write a lot of articles over at American Thinker. I'm just not 100% sure how much overlap. Sometimes I think there's none. But I'm very grateful that all of you guys stuck with me as we go from platform to platform. And the best way to do that, of course, is to sign up for my email over at colinflaherty.com. Let me see. There's a tab over there. It's either called subscribe or compose or something like that. It's easy to find. Just put your name, your email. And no matter what happens, that's the ultimate bulletproof solution. No matter how many of these clowns come out of the woodwork, no matter who they convince to, to, to try and stop us from telling the truth, stop you from hearing the truth, we can, you know, there's always going to be a place for us to go to where you and I can talk just like this. I just, and, and I really believe that. But it's going to take what you guys are already doing. It's going to take a little bit of patience on your part just to keep with me, keep going. So if you're not on that email list, you got to get over there and follow that 
And thank you once again for your fantastic response to the audio version of White Girl Bleed a Lot, which, truth be told, I probably should have done a little while ago. I guess my excuse, yeah, this is a good excuse. I was sick last year. That's the cover-all excuse. Yay! So anyway, I should have done that a while ago. I didn't. But now I'm back in my gleaming studios high above the metropolis of Wilmington, Delaware, working on the audio book of uh, Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. So maybe we'll have that on out in the market for listening. You're listening, pleasure. By uh, maybe beginning of December, I hope. One of the things I'm going to do with Don't Make the Black Kids Angry is I'm going to put it in a lot more audio files. Like one of the things, um, I did a lot of that on White Girl Bleed a lot. So when I came to an event, I would grab the news clip and use the audio in there. But one of the, I'd forgotten that one of the first chapters we did in Don't Make the Black Kids Angry, I'm rereading it now. There's a lot of stuff from Louisville. I think I chose Louisville because it had so much Denial, deceit, and delusion right on the surface. You could, and it was all compressed. And plus, we had these fantastic 911 calls that took everything that everybody said and just blew it up. I mean, everybody's trying to say, it's like, oh, nothing much happened, never really happened before. We took the 911 calls and destroyed that little fairy tale. And so we put that. There's about 17 minutes of 911 calls just in that one chapter alone. So I think I'm going to be doing a lot more of that in Don't Make the Black Kids Angry, and I think that's going to give this audiobook a lot of flavor, even if uh, whatever flavor might be lacking from the non-professional voice of your humble author slash narrator. All right, let's do the introduction thing. Hi, this is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of White Girl Bleed a Lot, now out on audio. And don't make the black kids angry. Not not on not, not on Amazon anymore. Not well, guess why? Coming back soon. I just met my publisher over the weekend. I saw him in person. And uh, so he's working on it diligently. And I think there's a chance we can get this little bad boy back on Amazon. So all good news all around. Anyway, here we talk about black violence, wildly out of proportion. So many people are in denial, deceit, and delusion. And every time I hear myself saying, here we talk about it, no, we don't t just talk about it. We show it. So I'm not, nobody's asking anybody to take anybody's word for anything. Like that clown that we just had on a few minutes ago talking about what a bad person I was. It's the second or third one I saw this week. I didn't want to really bore you guys with him too much. But I was actually thinking about taking the other guys um, he went on for a long time about what a bad person I was, how I was wrong about all these things. But not once did he give one example. So that's kind of a lesson for us, right? If we're, fight, if we're going up against this mountain of denial, deceit, and delusion, our best weapon has to be facts, real stories, undeniable stories. 911 calls are about as undeniable as you get. And so... Um, and so that's what we do here. So we don't just talk about things. We really kind of like show people stuff. I mean, that's the only way somebody could convince me of something, right? Anyway, and we do it all without racism, without rancor, most of the time, says the Reverend Bacon, and without <laughs> apologies. God, I really, you know, I'm really hypersensitive to apologies. You know, I mean, I see a victim. We're going to hear from, oh, man, we're going to hear a really, really bad victim story here today.
But I hear them, they're so eager to apologize. They're so eager to tell the world they're not a bad person. Why does a victim have, always feel like they're the ones that has to explain and apologize that they're not bad people when their relatives are the one lying on the ground with a knife in their back dead? And a district attorney who couldn't care less. Oh, wait till you hear that story. This, to me, is comparable to this. You're going to hear this in a couple minutes. Do you remember Cat Burke, that vision from hell, the mom, where a young fella came in who had lived with her, that he stole some stuff with her family. She took him in, graduated from high school, moved out, came back with knives. Tried to ki kill at least one member of the family, wounded a few others. If not for Cat, they all might have died. Anyway, she's in hell. She's in hell right now. She's in hell on earth. We did a story. We did a, We talked to her, and I think this woman you're going to hear, this is Schellenegger's mom, the businessman from Philly who was stabbed in the back and the jury just acquitted, found not guilty. His killer, Michael White, we're going to hear from her, and that's pretty harrowing as well. Um, but anyway, let's get to... Uh, but but there's a, there's lots of there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff packed in that interview we hear from her. Why don't we start with uh, a story we we did a few a couple days ago out of Lawrence, New Jersey. Now remember we this story popped up on the editorial pages of the New York Times, and I've been on the New York editorial. I've published things on that page, and when you publish something on the editorial pages of the New York Times. It's just because it's an op opinion piece. That doesn't mean they let you write any damn thing you feel like writing. No, if you write something, they're going to go, well, how do you know this? How do you know that? How do you know this? How do you know that? Well, those, win those rules, as we talked about on this podcast very recently, they just go all out the window when you talk about anything to do with the fellas and the lovely ladies being victims of white racism. Then all bets are off. Every anything goes and anything often does. So here, here was the story. The story was the woman wrote an op-ed saying, "Yeah, two kids from and two two kids of Indians, you know, the Hindu kind of Indians. Uh, two they they they, they urinated, they pissed on some black girls at a football game. I think I think the situation I saw was kind of like they were in the stands, the girls were below. The girl said somebody pissed on them, and then they called them." Racial epithets. And this black woman wrote a column saying, yeah, they pissed on them. And that's in the tradition of all the times white people are always messing with black people, even today. And that's why this, those kids, even though they're not white, are guilty of white supremacy because they're acting like white people because everybody knows white people do that all the time. And in our podcast, we showed that Hindu on Dindu, violence is not a thing. Dindu on Hindu is at explosive levels. Now we come from a story from today. From Lawrence, New Jersey, authorities found no evidence of a pea shower attack, attack on those two lovely ladies, but they are being charged with using racially derogatory language toward a group of black female students at the homecoming game. Wow. And so now what does the New York Times op-ed page do? I mean, this was a woman who wrote a book. The woman who wrote this op-ed 
She, she wrote a history like the white history of America or history of white America. She was an expert. She apparently was an expert in interracial urination. And now none of it happened. And now we're supposed to believe, well, let's go back to square one and let's go back and believe that the lovely ladies who lied about the urination are now telling the truth about everything else. Hmm, that should be interesting. And we did a story the other day about my experience on a historical bus in Philadelphia, which was supposed to be about George Washington and Betsy Ross. Oh, by the way, they moved, had to move Betsy Ross's grave more than a couple years ago, back in the 80s and 90s. They moved the grave out because she was buried, buried at what was once a very, very nice upscale uh, white community turned black overnight. One of our big viewers was born and raised there. Can't tell you his name. That might dox him. Uh, but they had to move her grave because the whole graveyard was just an island of white grave, white people buried in a graveyard surrounded by an ocean of black crime and violence. So these these dug her up and moved her out. Anyway, so uh, during this tour, I thought it was George Washington and Betsy Ross. Turned out to be all about, which was, it was a build as that, but it turned out we spent a half hour driving around Philadelphia learning about every single black person that ever came to Philadelphia before the year 1776. Just got a letter from one of our viewers about it. Listening to your description of your Philly bus tour, and I feel ya. My family and I took a homeschool field trip to Colonial Williamsburg this past spring, and it was the same thing there. All whites are bad. Blacks built and did everything. We are super diverse, blah, 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 she says. Very anti-white. And on top of that, they had hired a bunch of fellas and lovely ladies to work there. So to go to the governor's mansion and all that, the ticket takers and so forth were all lovely ladies. I thought, why am I paying for this? My ancestors go back to Jamestown. Why is all their hard work and accomplishments being trashed? When they emailed me later and asked me how my trip was, I gave them an earful, told them how anti-white it was and how my family would not be back anytime soon. Also, you look great on the Jesse Lee Peterson show the other day. I love your style, the hat, the sweater, etc. Very nice. I wish more men uh, these days dressed like that. Warmly signed a listener. Strange, isn't it, how this stuff just, how easy it is for all this stuff, all this anti-white hostility to seep into these institutions, all because there's never any pushback. Here's a short letter from a cop. The cop is really commenting on all these episodes of uh, anti-cop violence he sees in New York City where they're demonstrating against cops yelling, fuck the police in New York City over the weekend. And then he's talking about all that regular anti-white hostility the fellas give to the cops in, you know, every city in America where there are fellas confronting cops. This is what he says. Hey, Colin, we will witness in our lifetimes the mass exodus of cops from the profession. Then a giant drought of applicants will occur. Cities will be forced to backfill the gigantic shortfall 
with overtime, which will deplete their budgets. To remedy this, standards will be lowered and corruption will infect every major agency. He's talking about police agencies. The only, re- the only solution will be federal invent- in- intervention. It's not going to be good. Okay, that's a little bit of a prediction there. We don't really do that around here. But this is re- now this is reality that we know is playing out. I mean, this is, this is the next part, not a prediction. The next part is pushing a rock down the hill and saying, uh, yeah, that rock is going to keep rolling until it gets to the bottom of the hill. So he continues, the the Riverside, it's Riverside, California, where I used to live. The Riverside Sheriff's Department is now allowing people with neck tattoos to apply and will allow people who have used heroin, meth, and even crack as long as it hasn't been within the last three years. That's close. I just got in under the gun. (laughs) Also, also. Okay, CalPERS, then he's going to talk about CalPERS. That's the California pension system. Now, whenever you have some goofy-ass idea that requires a lot of public investment for solar or wind or something stupid, or you want to divest in something that's making a lot of money, but it's not really, not really does, it doesn't really fit the social justice warrior model of how money should, where money should come from, CalPERS is like the first stop. They are a sucker for every little investment scheme coming down the road. And so now in the middle of the greatest stock market expansion in the universe, CalPERS is telling cops, we have to reduce your benefits significantly because we're running out of money. Hmm. Okay, so with CalPERS, he says, their retirement system is so in the red, they went from, you could retire with from 3%, you could retire with 3% of your salary for every year you worked on the force per year at 50. So if you work 25 years, retire to 50, you get 75% of your salary, and they crank that down to 2.7% of your salary, and then they push the retirement age back to 57 that is a significant cut from an agency that is swimming in trouble. He continues, I don't know if you're familiar, but this is how it breaks down. 3% 50 mean you would get 3% of your salary for every year of service that you could begin drawing at age of 50. So now you're asking new applicants to sign on to being a cop in Southern California until they are 57 years old. Good luck, Kyle. Good luck with that. This affects all California agencies. You know, for certain people that know about their demographics, as apparently I do, since I am now uh, one of the top six experts in America on African American demographics. And certain, and you combine the demographics with the financial projections. That's how you determine what pensions are. Oh, the fact that they're cranking you back up to fifty-seven and cranking down your per figure per number. Per, per year number. Oh man, that is such a red flag. That's almost like a line, you know, it's almost like a run at the bank. It's almost like the bank, ma- you know, you go into your bank and the bank manager sitting there going, well, uh, I can only give you um, 80% of your money now, but if you come back next week, I might have the other 20%. What would you think about that? 
you think, A, I might not ever get that extra 20%. B, take the 80%. And C, find another bank. Okay, so every once in a while, I talk about how things, certain things I like to geek out on. I like to geek out on past, really, past the point, really, where maybe other people are interested in it. Uh, I think one of the things I was geeking out on was the numbers and how, you know, everybody, all the, how they cook the books and all this stuff. Got me rolling on that. We're, you know, I won't stop this podcast for another 12 hours, so don't get me started. But here's something else I really, really, really like way more than I should, maybe way more than you should. I love hearing stories about the fellas and the lovely ladies going back to the motherland because that's where they can escape the white oppression. That's where they can be themselves. That's where they can re-get re in touch with their ancestors. And it's all very idyllic. We're going to hear one of these stories from the BBC, except it's missing one, one tiny little, well, really two tiny little things. One, they're going to, as any story with Ghana, Ghana has declared this the year of return. It's a kind of a marketing campaign to all the fellas and lovely ladies in, Af in America. Come back to Africa and uh, you can go through that tunnel of no return. See where all your aunts and uncles were led out to the boats to be taken to America. But I've never seen in any one of these go back to Ghana stories, I've never seen anybody say how the fellas got into the dungeons in the first place while they waited to go to the point of no return. How did they get there? I'm a bored little walking sailor away with me. You think the white slave traders did one of those, hey, we're giving out, you know, like one of these police things where they go, hey, we're giving out 50-inch flat screen TVs, so come down to the police station and claim yours. It's free. You just want it. You think that's how it happened? How did the slaves get in that damn dungeon? Who gathered them up? Who sold, who captured them? Who sold them? Who transported them to the dungeon? Think that was white people? It wasn't white people. No. The slave traders walked in and just said, hey, how many you got today? And the fellas in charge of the slave trade said, 
well, we got a good crop. Here's 100. Can you take 100? And they did. And so for all the people that went back there that said they're getting in touch with their ancestors, well, okay, maybe there's a chance their ancestors were on those boats. But I don't know why they wouldn't have an equal chance of having their ancestors being the ones who sold the slaves into captivity. All right, let's just hear this Ghana stuff because <laughs> the audio is just a tiny bit sketchy. Uh, but uh, I think you, I hope you get a kick out of listening. To me, there's no such thing as, as a black woman in Ghana. I'm a woman in Ghana. Living in the U.S., all of the seats are taken, all the big brands are there. And here, you have an opportunity to create a seat at the table. It's significant to, to know where you belong and where you came from. For Angela Matthews and Cindy Myers, this morning marks the start of a trip they never thought they would make. I think of uh, our grandparents who wish they could have gone back. But we're doing it for them. The sisters are getting ready to travel to Ghana in West Africa for the first time. This group could have visited this country any time, but they chose this year. Ghana is encouraging more descendants of the slave trade to retrace their roots. They've called 2019 the year of return. It's 400 years after the first enslaved Africans arrived in what is now the US. This is Cape Coast Castle. It was one of the most important African bases for British slave traders during the 18th century. Historians believe at least 12 million people were shipped from West Africa to plantations in the Americas and the Caribbean. As we walk down the dungeons, this is the real dungeon in Ghana. I never thought I would make this trip. Never, never. My sister and I are the first generation to make it here. And it's just, it's just truly amazing. Truly amazing. For Angela and her sister, the trip to the castle and its dungeons holds a special meaning. They recently took a DNA test and discovered that they are of Ghanaian heritage, meaning their ancestors may have been held in these cells. I'm so grateful to be here and to be here with my ancestors. It gives me a great joy and I feel like I'm home. And thank you and gratitude to every ancestor of my bloodline. Thank you for being strong enough to make it. I'm sorry you had to go through this. This place is very saddening to see how they were treated so inhumane I mean who would do that why money it's just very saddening enslaved Africans were pushed through the door of no return and onto waiting ships 
For many, it would be the last time they would see the continent. Being here, taking my shoes off, getting into the water, the Atlantic Ocean, I felt at peace, I felt at home. I felt like all of my ancestors, we were reunited and it was just a wonderful feeling. For some black Americans, Ghana is more than a holiday destination. This is a very busy uh, hustle and bustle. Right down the street is Oxford Street, the main street where people go out. Ghana's economy is attracting young people who are searching for more than their identity. My name is uh, Voltaire Exodus um, and I'm a consultant and I'm a founder of the company WeUp. I've been here five weeks and uh, I've, you know, when I hit the ground, uh, I really tried to build my network as much as possible going out to different uh, spaces and events. You are new in Ghana, you're not really familiar with the African print, so I'm trying to like combine things that you can wear and then wear in Ghana and wear it out there. But why would someone who has never even visited Ghana before choose to move there? For me, being in business, it's an opportunity to be a part of creating a city and a, a country that's emerging. So living in the U.S., all of the seats are taken, all the big brands are there, and we're here, the cement is wet, and you have an opportunity to create a seat at the table. Everybody is born with a gift. The question is, how much do you water that cement potential? And in our but he admits, it's not just about the money. The main differences of my life in Ghana and the U.S. is uh, the peace. Ghana is a very peaceful place. This is where you get comments from your friends like, be safe, right? And they actually live in Chicago, Illinois. That's partly tied to the imagery, imagery that they're fed every day. This is Lakeisha Ford. Five years ago, she decided to move to Ghana to start a new life. And with it came a new sense of identity. To me, there's no such thing as, as a black woman in Ghana. I'm a woman in Ghana. We are all black. <laughs> I don't see color here because I'm a part of the majority. And I think that's a privilege and a luxury. She was born and brought up in the US and her move to Ghana was about starting her own business. But it became more than that. The African continent, specifically Ghana, has um, restoration for people of color in the diaspora. You know, I want to show people that this is not just an alternative, but a real option to live your life and be successful. Lakeisha has no plans to move back to the US and she's encouraging others to join her. Any black person that is in the diaspora, a trip needs to be made to the African continent. There's almost this like un, undefined closure that happens. You didn't even know you needed this. You don't even know you need closure in a certain light, but coming here, you get it. And there's almost an alignment that happens. 
back at the tour group, Angela, Cindy and the other travellers have also been able to discover a different side to Ghana. The country estimates the number of tourists wanting to find out about their heritage will increase by up to 40% this year. For Angela, retracing her roots has changed how she looks at her home country. And this time and all the things that are going on with our current president, it's significant to, to know where you belong and where you came from. So for me, coming back here, um, reuniting with my ancestors, um, makes me feel at home. I have a culture, I have a people, I belong. That's the significance it is for me. So everybody's having these big emotional experiences upon their return to the motherland. Being black is exhausting. All right. Okay, whatever. You know what? If that's your thing, go ahead. But they couldn't resist, could they? It's like, man, I got to come back to Ghana, especially realizing who the president of the United States is. What do those two things have in common? Connect with somebody. Connect the dots for me. What? Trump is one... Somehow I missed this. Trump wants to reinstitute slavery. Last I checked, Trump was letting the fellas and lovely ladies out of prison, even though they should be still be in prison. Yeah, he's part of that whole mess, criminal justice reform. He's part of the movement all over the country where they're letting people out of federal, state, local prisons. And when they get back on the street, they start doing the same damn thing that got them in prison in the first place you know you saw these women walking around ghana and every once in a while they do kind of a panoramic screen shot of that city they were in in ghana but they only showed the panoramic shot of the city for like a second before they blurred out but if you stop and freeze framed it on that audio on that video what you see is just a big old it's a shanty town it's just a big bunch of big wooden just a bunch of one-story wooden structures made out of kind of boxes and tossed away building material. In Tijuana, they used to call those tent cities. Tent cities because, now they call them parachute cities because it would seem like people would parachute in there and just kind of like they'd pop up overnight. And, and that one woman, she was saying, I'm a, you know, in Ghana, I'm not a black woman, I'm just a woman. Well, it's interesting because she's down there teaching yoga. She has a yoga studio, right? So that's, an, that's a Hindu thing. If you look at, see her studio, she's got all these like Indian artifacts, Hindu sayings and all this stuff. And I don't know why an American black woman has to go to Ghana to teach people about Indian traditions like yoga and the, you know, the hocus pocus that goes along with it. But what do I know? Nothing. And uh, the women, when they're walking around Ghana, they all have got their urban purse thing going on. The purses are uh, the, they're small square purses and everybody's clutching them to the front of their body. Oh no, they're at, they are on full security alert in Ghana. And what is that, that guy that was there? I mean, what's his story? Does he think he's just going to walk in and go, Hey man, I'm an American. I'm smarter than all the rest of you fellas. So give me your money now. You know what they're going to say down in Ghana? They're going to say two things. One, we don't think you're smarter than us. Two, we don't have any money. So I love these Ghana stories. I love these going back to Africa stories because they really, to me, are very revealing. 
about these black on this black on white hostility that's so so much on the surface anyway, but some people find it easy to ignore until until they see a story like this where they go back and say, "Hey, man, I don't want anything to do with that whole thing you call American civilization. It's just a bunch of bad people." Yeah, wait till they start making some money down there. Wait till you see that. Let's see how long that lasts. They don't even bother calling them taxes down there. All you do is some some dude with a couple of soldiers shows up at your house, tells you your tax bills due, puts the hand out, and he doesn't take it down until you fill it with money. We saw that woman with the yoga studio. Oh yeah, she was going into a uh, her. She pulled into her driveway, full security, big wall, big heavy sliding gate that, that you know closed as soon as she was back there. Oh, yeah. Everybody was on full alert. I've come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Because everybody knows white people do it, too. I really like to play the knockout game. Or leave your store in total disarray, disarray. Don't hassle me, cause all your stuff is for free. I didn't do nothing anyway. Amazing. Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team. Don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV. Cause you know through and through, all you're gonna do is make the black kids angry. It's not mob violence, it's just a fight. Fellas blowing off a little steam. Some midnight basketball will be just fine in the middle of our quiet, safe community. Always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to you Cause what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas or the lovely lady Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry This isn't that much of a detour, but it's just a tiny bit of a detour. But let's, let's take it anyway, because I think I can bring it back into our lane. So, you know, back in the 60s, it became a thing where the fellas... They decided that, you know, they needed to be elected to all these offices. And so all of a sudden, 60s, 70s, 80s, lots of black people were elected to city councils in Newark, New Jersey, Mayor Cory Booker, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, Wilmington, Delaware, Camden, lots and lots of cities where the fellows took over these Democratic machines. And when they took over, the first thing they, the guy actually said this in Philadelphia, I think his name was John Farmer. He took it over on his speech election night. I think he said something like, um, uh, I'm trying to find a recording of this. I'll play it at a later podcast. I think he said something like, hey, it's our turn now. It's black people's turn to run this show now. And in their view, all that has been happening at all these Democratic machine 
democratic machines is that the white people were just in there stuffing their pockets with money and paying it out to all their friends, just totally neglecting everything else. That was an illusion. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it wasn't. But whatever it was, they got in there and did that with gusto. And so the, I think the reason I wanted to take you on this little side trip is because for a couple of years, I had a, I have a buddy who's kind of like one of these nomad, nomadic CEOs who goes into one company for three, two or three, five years, turns it around, sets it up, sets it up, goes to the next company. So one of the companies he had was a sewer pipe replacement, a sewer pipe repair company, one of the largest, probably the largest in the world. So I got the chance to learn a lot about sewer pipes and water pipes and how you fix them and what's wrong with them. And I think for that two-year period, the stuff I was writing about sewer and water, I think I probably got more stuff published on that than anybody in the country. This guy was everywhere. And all I remember about the sewer pipes was saying this, hey, the sewer pipes were built 80 years ago. They were meant to last 50 years. Ditto for water pipes. Water pipes were built a long time ago, and their useful life ran out about 30 years ago. So they're all leaking. They're all disrepair. But when the, and you could see that, so what you do is you go on, you know, if you do read, and I, I, I did a deep dive into this at the time. And what you do is you just go and you find, there's, a, there's the buzzword. The buzzword is non-revenue water. If you want to see what kind of shape your, your town's water pipes are in, you go, okay, your town is like, Camden, New Jersey, the non-revenue water is somewhere near 50%. That means every drop of water they process at the plant, they lose 50% of it by the time it gets to your house. That's non-revenue water. And all the cities up and down the East Coast, that cities now run by the fellas like Newark, New Jersey, and Cory Booker, all these cities, their non-revenue water numbers are through the roof. The water pipes leak like crazy. And it's because when the fellas got in there, they all just decided, they saw this huge pot of money sitting there. Now, when you pay your water bill, that's supposed to go into a fund that nobody could touch. It's only meant for maintaining the water system. Well, that's a fiction because you get the pointy-headed boys in there and they could figure out ways to get money out of that fund and make it seem as if it's really a water-related expense when it is not. I mean, in San Diego, the big dodge was the police department would charge the water department every time they ran over a manhole, a water manhole, or a sewer, you know, a sewer cover. They just estimated and sent the water. This was all done with everybody's complicity because they. This was how you looted the water fund, and and put the money in the general fund. So. So they were taking millions of dollars every year from the water fund and putting it in the general fund until somebody figured it out and they had to pay it all back. These are just, just moving money on, on paper from one account to another. But with the water and the sewer pipes, there is so much money floating there, everybody wants to just grab it because you just, made, you just want a campaign saying you're going to build lots of new community centers and equalize the rich and poor in Newark, New Jersey. And you turn around and you go, hey, where's all the money? Well, we don't have any money. What's all that money doing over there? Well, we're not supposed to touch it. It's for water and sewer. That doesn't last very long. Ditto for gas, by the way. All the money you pay in gas tax, yeah, that's just sitting there. Like in California, they've been doing this for as long as I was there, 
raise the gas tax, promise they're going to use it only for roads and bridges and fixing up things for cars. Next thing you know, they come and scoop it all out and use it for something else. Well, that's the story on water infrastructure. You can get away with that for a year or two or three. But the rule of thumb is you have to invest 2% of your the value of your system every year into fixing your system. You have to fix 2% every year because it runs out every 50 years. So, you know, it's two, that's 2%. They last 50 years. That's 2% a year, right? You get it? 50, 50 years, they're degrading at 2% per year. So you've got to start replacing them. Bam, bam, bam. If you don't, all of a sudden your sewers, pipes are, are breaking. If you ever see... Uh, um, if you ever see a story in the paper about a sinkhole, it's amazing. I've, I've written about this a gajillion times too. It's amazing how many times you see a sinkhole and they go, well, it was a liquefaction over geographical formation. No. Did you ever notice the sinkholes always form over roads, over sewer pipes? Did you ever notice that? Do you think there's any relationship between those two things? If you said yes, you're paying attention. Congratulations. Sewer pipes are like very powerful vacuum cleaners. That's what they're made to do, right? Get whatever's in there and move it on through that pipe. When your sewer pipe has a hole in it, it's buried, say, six feet below the ground and a road. Say your sewer pipe rots because you haven't done anything to replace it since it was built 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago. All of a sudden, it rots. Maybe it's as big as a pinprick. Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's as big as a quarter. It doesn't have to be that big. The dirt goes into the sewer pipe. What happens to the dirt? Gets whisked away. Where'd the dirt come from? Above the pipe. So all of a sudden, the entire street is getting hollowed out. One teaspoon couple teaspoons a day, an hour, a week. Who knows how quickly it is? But that thing is getting hollowed out. The next thing you know, you see a story about a car being swallowed by a sinkhole and everybody thinks it's some kind of magical thing of liquefaction because of geographic formations. Now, most of the times it's not that. It's bad sewer pipes. And if you look at a map of all the people with the worst sewer pipes, you'll see it happens on the East Coast most because they're, they're, that's where they're the oldest. And you travel to the West, and the, the, the rate of non-revenue water, they call it, is maybe 5 to 15% on the West Coast. But on the East Coast, it's as much as 35 40 45 50 60 even 70%. Look it up in all these cities. Look it up in the chocolate cities. Look it up in Baltimore. Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Camden, Wilmington, Detroit, that's a whole new level of, of, of water system and sewer system being screwed up. They're not investing any money in that. As a matter of fact, in Detroit, they can't get people to pay their bills, and they won't shut it off. For a long time, you could just ignore your water bills in Detroit. And finally, a couple years ago, they went and hired a firm, and the firm, you know, the firm was one that's supposed to go out and collect the money or at least get some money, or else they said they were going to turn the water off. All of a sudden, everybody had a heart attack. All of a sudden, all this federal and state money came flowing in to help people pay those water bills. But they don't, they're, not really, they're not really maintaining them. 
Fixing the water and sewer systems is not really a thing the fellas like Cory Booker was overly engaged in. And so now we have this story out of Newark, New Jersey. It's called Water is Not Just Infrastructure, It is Life. And this podcast from Roar Magazine says this woman talks with local activists from Newark, New Jersey, who are fighting for a robust democratization of the city's water management. Translation. We want to knock the people's, we want to reduce the price of water to everybody in Newark. We don't want anybody to have their water shut off if they don't pay their water bill. And we don't give a damn if the damn thing keeps breaking down. That's what it means. This infrastructure is a thing. They say, some people say Atlanta is doing a decent job with their infrastructure. Maybe they were forced to by a federal judge. I don't know. I'm just telling you, when you have a place where lots and lots of fellows are running these cities, they don't give a damn about the water and sewer pipes. They just want to get their hands on the money and spend it on other stuff. And the result is a calamity for your city. All of a sudden, your water and sewer pipes don't work. All of a sudden, your bills are sky high. All of a sudden, a lot of people are getting free water, except for you. Anyway, I hope that wasn't too far off, off, too far afield, because Newark, New Jersey, where Cory Booker was the mayor, that's kind of ground zero for there. You know what? Let's let's uh, let's break this up a little bit with our old buddy Chris Matthews. He just did a story with uh, Susan Rice. What was she, National Security Advisor for the greatest president in the history of this republic, Barack Hussein Obama. Chris is offering us some theories as to why some people, well, I guess I hate to say this, I might be one of them. Some people might not be the biggest fans of Barack Obama on this planet. Take it away, Chris about how she recognized the very real prospect of a Trump presidency back in August of 2015. Quote, during a small dinner party with President Obama and a couple senior political aides, I said that I could see a way for Trump to gain the nomination. I persisted saying there is a lot of hate out there. You know, some people just can't get over where we are now. I was not suggesting that then that Trump would be president, but I didn't think the nomination was out of reach. Well, Susan Rice is back with us with her clairvoyance. So you thought it was doable, that he might just pull that thing off. I certainly thought it was possible he could win the nomination. Now, this is August of 2015, so we still had quite a ways to go to the nomination, but I saw a path. You wrote in a book that I'm not proud to. Well, you know, I've said it 1,000 times on this show, and I, and I believe in it. The Barack Obama was such a sterling character. His family was such a sterling, perfect family. They are perfect by any standards of traditional American values. They obeyed all the rules. They weren't money grubbers. They paid public service from the beginning of his career. He didn't. He didn't even go into private money. He went into helping the country with community development, the whole works, public service. And it drives some people who don't like the success of anybody who is a minority crazy. You, you suggest that was one of the reasons why you thought Trump might win. I think it was that and more. Uh, I think there was a vein of, of discontent that I sensed that, uh, that Trump had the potential to, tra- to tap into. Um, Part of it may have been, of course, the fact that uh, we had an African-American president who was elected twice and quite successful in office. But I think it was broader than that. And uh, 
uh, you know, at that time, the field was very large, yeah. uh, and it seemed almost inconceivable to most people that uh, it wouldn't be, a, you know, a Bush or a Rubio or something like that. But Trump had a particular brand of uh, tapping into visceral negative uh, views of, of, you know, many Americans. Demagogues do. And You're he right. tried to divide us. Well, you write about the day after Trump's election, quote, I felt like a stinging rebuke of all we believed in, unity, equality, dignity, honesty, hope, and progress. The more I thought about it, the worse I felt. Well, that's pretty, I don't think you have to comment on that. You had early dealings with Michael Flynn, who was going to be your successor at National Security. He was my successor for 24 days. <laughs> and you predicted, well, in the book you say you predicted, Ain't guy gonna, this guy's not going to last. What was it in him that you saw was uh, fragile, if putting it that way? He seemed to me out of his depth. Uh, Actually, interestingly, not the man that we all saw at the Republican convention shouting, lock her up, but rather quite subdued, quite uh, humbled, it seemed, by the, the weight of the job as well he should have been. But substantively, strategically, uh, he didn't seem that well prepared and he didn't seem that interested yeah. in learning what he needed to learn to get prepared. That, that grabbed a, me. The fact that a guy or a woman is about to take over for the world. The NSC has to cover every continent, every political issue. And he, what he spent, like a, 10 hours with you total? It was 12 hours and I chased him for each of those four meetings. He was uh, busy meeting with foreigners uh, as well as, um, I think, you know, doing whatever he thought uh, President-elect Trump wanted him to do. I was trying to get him to understand you know, what he needed to do to hit the ground running in terms of substance, the issues were, that he was going to face on day one, as well as just how to run the NSC, how to staff it, what the budget was, basic stuff. This is a great book. Is there a you know, when Susan Rice was talking there, I just couldn't help but remember the picture of all the Obama staffers. You remember that when Trump came to visit the White House? I think it was in December. Remember, there was like 50 all lined up and they were crossing their arms, Valerie Jarrett, and they were all glaring at Trump. And now we know all the crazy stuff that White House staffers, including Susan Rice, all the stuff they were doing with the FBI and the CIA. I know it sounds crazy to even say this. All the stuff the FBI and the CIA were doing to sabotage Trump's election and the presidency itself. And the only reason anybody, any one of us raises our eyebrows at this is because we don't like successful minority people. How does, how the hell do you think Barack Obama got elected in the first place? He got elected because white people in this country are desperate to see more legitimate, successful black people. They want black people to quit bugging us. And if bugging us is saying we're the problem for their dysfunction, we're desperate for somebody like Barack Obama, what he represented, but what he turned out not to be. And now Chris Matthews is like just weaving these fairy tales with Susan Rice, nobody asking one question like, hey, Susan, uh, what did you know about any of our... CIA cooperating with people in England and Australia and here and there. I don't know all the details, so I'm not part of the plot, believe me. But it's crazy how much these people were doing against Trump. Wow, it's not even, 
Man, we can't even call it a swamp anymore. I don't even know what we're going to call it. I think we're kind of switching it up here, but that's okay. Let's switch it up again. But again, this is another story of whenever, whenever anything comes to race, people feel like they just have an open field. They can say anything they want. And as long as it's like white people bad, black people victims, you can say anything you want because nobody's going to stand up and go, hey, wait a minute. I don't know if I agree with that. And so, is anybody, okay, this old dude, when I was in grade school, I used to, every month, the nuns would hand out these papers, and you would check these books, and you'd go back to your house and go, hey, mom, dad, can I have uh, three bucks? I want to read these four books from Scholastic. I go, yeah, sure, here. Don't bother us anymore until next month. So you bring your money in, and you know, a week later, you get these books, and it was like, I was always kind of excited by that get these books from Scholastic, and I got the magazine every month. It was Scholastic magazine, all these cool stuff in there. Anyway, so I guess Scholastic grew up because they're now doing um, uh, documentaries with HBO. Here's the headline of this latest Scholastic documentary with HBO. They're going to, this, is a, this is like a teaching thing for their schools, teach a curriculum. What's my name? Muhammad Ali. Find out how Muhammad Ali used his public role as a boxing hero to speak out against racism in America. You know, I remember reading when it came out, it was must have been in the 80s. I think it might have been the great Jack Cashel's first book. It was about Muhammad Ali, and he took the legend and the myth, and he dissected every little bit of it, and he showed what was really behind it. And it was just a fascinating book because, I mean, Ali had this, everybody knows he had this great magnetism. I mean, what's the cliche about people with charm? Say he was so charming, he could tell you to go to hell in such a way as to make you look forward to the trip. So that's Muhammad Ali in in this thing. But here specifically, they sent him up as a person to speak out against racism. Um, I don't know. Let's listen to the little trailer that they used. They're using to sell their course in schools so you can learn about the anti-racism of Muhammad Ali. And uh, it's really most, mostly about Ali, how people liked him. Then let's listen to an interview Ali did where it was kind of like anything but anti-racist. Anybody who's doing the right thing, they catch a lot of hell. You cannot please God and the devil, too. Well, I'm rejected here and rejected there. Then I have a good feeling spiritually because I'm right. If I wasn't right, then they would accept me. Cassius Clay is a name no more. Yes, sir. It's Muhammad Ali. He's more capable of speaking for himself than any man in this country. This kid had that style, this quickness. I'm going to hit you six times before you count two. You want to see it again? (laughs) Boys in Vietnam are throwing away their lives. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the armed forces. He got the title because the draft took my title. Mom, boo, you want to hear no more about Joe Frazier. Here comes Muhammad Ali. I'm the boldest, the most creative, greatest fighter of all time. Okay, here, and so here's the interview he did. He did this in England. 
and, and, and when you're watching it on video, you can see the, um, the white guy interviewing them on BBC. He's visibly disappointed that his hero, his anti-racism hero, Muhammad Ali, is telling, is telling him he doesn't think black people and white people should mingle or marry because, well, that's just against the rules of nature. And another thing, when you say integration, it comes on the intermarriage too, right? All right. been together. Right. Sure. And I'm sure no intelligent white person watching this show, or no intelligent uh, white man in his or her right white mind, want black boys and black girls marrying their white sons and daughters, and in return introducing their grandchildren as half brown, kinky head black people. I, w I, and I'm sure I I'm, wouldn't object to that. Well, you wouldn't, but a lot of them would. But I'm sure a lot of people would. No, it's just a What I'm trying to say is this. What I'm trying to say is this. And you don't have it. You say you don't, but you don't have it. You really ain't going to have it. You're on the show and you got to say that. But what <laughs> That's, that's, that's not true. Why would you want to do that? Because, because I, don't, I don't think I'm any different from you, you see. Yeah, we, yeah we're much different. That's I mean, I think society's you know, made us different. You know we're different. We're all together. But society's different. made us different. No, not society. God made us different. No, no, we're just human beings. He made all no, of no, us. We all, listen, bluebirds fly with bluebirds. Red birds want to be with red birds. Listen, listen, tell me when I'm wrong. Pigeons want to be with pigeons. But tell we have me intelligence. when I'm wrong. Well, we, well, we must, they, well, don't we have. Have, they don't have intelligence, but yet no. they stay together. We should have more intelligence than them, right? <laughs> buzzards are with buzzards. Yeah. Buzzards are with buzzards. Bluebirds are with bluebirds. They all are birds, but they've got different cultures. The eagles like to hang out in the mountains. The buzzards like to fly around the desert. Well, the bluebird like to fly around the trees and the grass. There'd be certain problems a, a buzzard mating with a sparrow, wouldn't there? What? There'd be certain... Right, right. And as I we mean, have the problems, too. No, I, don't see, I, don't see, I don't see no black and white couples in England or America walking around proud holding their children. That's because society... And, and going out. That's, that's society's fault. Well, I, mean, well, well, I mean, we've got to educate well, my, people around. Well, life is too short for me to be raised catching hell for something like that. I'd rather go and be my own. I have a beautiful daughter, beautiful wife. They look like me. We're all happy, and I don't have no trouble. <laughs> I have no trouble. I ain't that much in love with no woman to go through all that hell. Ain't no one woman that good. <laughs> you understand? I understand, yeah. I just, I do understand. I understand. I think it's, I think it's sad that, that, that... It ain't sad because I want my child sad. to look it's like me. Issue. Every intelligent person wants his child to look like him. I'm sad because I want to blot out my race and lose my beautiful identity. Chinese love Chinese. They love the little slanted-eyed, pretty brown-skinned babies. Pakistanis love their culture. Jewish people love their culture. A lot of Catholics, they want to marry number Catholics. They want the religion to stay the same. Who want to spot up yourself and kill your race? You're, you're a hater of your people if you don't want to stay who you are. You shame what God made you. God didn't make no mistake when he made us all like we I, were. I think that's a philosophy I'm, of despair. Despair. I really do. It ain't it's, no despair. Yeah? Number one, can't no woman. Let me tell you something. Well, I'll tell you. Listen, no woman on this whole earth, not even a black woman in Muslim countries, can please me and cook for me and socialize and talk to me like my American black woman. No woman, at last, is a white woman can really identify with me and my feelings and the way I act and the way I talk. And you can't take no Chinese man and give him no Puerto Rican woman and holler him about we're in love and you emotionally in love and physically, but really they're not happy because she's going to hear some Puerto Rican music, he's going to hear some Chinese music. And they're going to be clashing all the time. It's just nature. You can do what you want, but it's nature to want to be with your own. I want to be with my own. I love my people. That's all I hate. And most people think black people can't be racist either, by the way. And there's a whole generation, I say this, you know, 
I said this, you know, for apartheid uh, South Africa. I said this for my own, you know, community in the South. There are still generations of people, older people, who were born and bred and marinated in it, in that prejudice and racism, and they just have to die. All right, let's get back to some black crime and violence, horrific in a way that you and I cannot imagine it. This one took place in Mississippi. Two fellows were out driving around. They saw a car that was running with a little, they didn't realize it at the time, there was a black child sitting in the back seat. The fella, we're going to hear from his father in a minute, a fella hopped in the car, stole the car, takes the car to the edge of town, takes the kid out, shoots the kid, takes some pictures, and he calls up his friends and brags about it. That's this guy's son. McBride. Byron McBride Jr.'s son. It's my son. I would like to thank Claire and Ledger for the picture that they posted of my son, bruised and battered. I would like to thank them very unconsciously for putting that my son is the shooter before the case even started. I would like to thank the media for casting my son out. I went talk to a lawyer today. You know what this lawyer told me? That I'll be wasting my money. And his number is six digit to even get started. He ain't guaranteeing me he gonna win. Y'all have put my son not under the bus. Y'all put my son up under a bulldozer. He don't have a chance. No weapon, nothing is found on my son. How can you Dang my son out like this. It's wrong. If you, I was out of town when I heard the message of my son. How can all over the world know that my son is the shooter at the second day my son is in jail? How? I want some answers. Claire and Ledger, since you're going to put that out on my child, will you please? Give me some answers. Thank you very much. Can you tell us Thank what you he told much. you what happened? He didn't tell us anything. My son did, Thank you. My son did not kill that baby. Thank you. Did not kill that baby. But y'all gonna kill my son. <laughs> y'all gonna kill my son. Thank you. But that boy did not do that. Come on. Y'all gonna no kill my son. And now why don't we hear from this guy's aunt. Yeah, the killer of the six-year-old kid. Yeah, he was just convicted of it today. Maybe yesterday. Let's hear what a sweet child he was and how he's going to have a hard time in Mississippi because in Mississippi, black man can't get justice. And what kind of guy he is? The sweetest. He's the sweetest. Went harmlessly. He's an athlete, I understand. Very great athlete. Mm -hmm. He was playing football mm -hmm. originally. Can you tell me how he conducted himself, his type of fella he is? I mean, he's... A great student, great father, great friend. He's a great person. Do you worry whether justice will get served? In the great state of Mississippi, yes, I do. For three African-American males, yeah, I do. It looks kind of scary now, doesn't it? Because they say this is a heinous crime. Yes, it is. You don't believe the one, did it? Not a shadow of a doubt. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. 
D. Allen Washington is sentenced to 15 years to serve for accessory after the fact to kidnapping. It is a plea deal to testify against the other two defendants in the murder and kidnapping of six-year-old Kingston Frazier. Emotional testimony in court today, D. Allen Washington apologized for not doing anything to stop the crime last year. He was a passenger in the car when Dewan Wakefield and Byron McBride allegedly pulled into the Kroger parking lot and found a running Honda vehicle. He has told investigators that it was Byron McBride who jumped into that car to steal it, discovered the child was inside, but instead of letting him out, took the child to Madison County, shot and killed the little boy, and even took a picture of the child's body afterwards. Just keeping it real, Chris. Keeping it real. Okay, here's the one I saved for last. I didn't know whether to put this last or first. If I did this podcast tomorrow, I might put it first. So this is the woman. This is the mother of the guy named Schellinger. He was the young businessman in Philadelphia who last summer was out with his, his crowd at around 10 o'clock at night. Well, here that you may, we've talked about this crime. I won't get into it anymore. Ended up in a scuffle with a fella who was in, who was a complete crazed nut job, a young guy who was carrying around a knife in his hand. Next thing you know, he's stabbing this guy in the back with it, and he's dead. At first, he's he's charged with murder one. Then all the families and all the ministers of Black Philadelphia went to the DA and said, "Hey, what's up? We 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 supported you in the election. You won the election because of us. Why are you charging this brother with murder one? That's not murder one. That's murder three. Knocked it down to murder three. Day before the murder three trial was began, they put it to involuntary manslaughter. This mother of this guy now is she has this cold steel fury." that I haven't seen in many of these cases. She's not going to rest until her son gets some justice. Good for her. But at the same time, this has to be said. She should be a beacon, a warning for the rest of us, for our friends. You're going to hear her say, she's going to talk about the election of the district attorney, Krasner, in, in Philadelphia. Now, Krasner is one of the Soros DAs. Now, Soros doesn't give the money directly to Krasner. He gives it to a special independent fund, in that case, over a million dollars. And the, the the commercials are all about criminal justice reform, too many black people being arrested for no reason whatsoever. And God dang it, we got to get them out. We got to reverse. I mean, that's what all these district attorney campaigns are about. I think about seven, eight, nine out of 10 of them are successful. Message, every district attorney in America got the message. Oh, yeah. That's what we're doing now. Overnight, we are now singing the song that there are too many black people in prison for no reason whatsoever. So let's not charge them fully. Let's not sentence them fully. And let's get them back in the community where they could be mentors to little kids who are going to grow up to be NASA astronauts. Well, you know, whenever we talk about this criminal justice reform thing, I do say, you know, when you're in the room, when you're one of the geniuses in the room talking to Donald Trump or talking to a governor or talking to a mayor, I'm the one going, hey, didn't anybody in that room say there's going to come a time when all the, when we start letting all these fellas out of jail or when this criminal justice reform t- starts to fully take hold and people aren't getting convicted of these crimes, is there going to be anybody who's going to want to answer the phone call from the victims going, hey, what happened? Why weren't you fighting for us? 
Well, that's who this woman is. She's the one confronting Krasner. She's not going away. She's the one calling BS on the whole thing up there. I just hope it's, well, it's probably too late. So let's hear her. At the time, did you have any attorneys advising you or helping you as part of your support system? Well, no. Um, family, family attorney. Um, but not from a criminal perspective. You know, like not, I didn't think that I needed an attorney because I thought the prosecutor was the attorney for the victim. Um, that turned out not to be the case at all. So you use past tense, you say, I thought the prosecutor was the attorney for the victim. With this particular prosecutor, what is your, um, what is your understanding now of who that prosecutor is the attorney for? He is definitely the, the attorney for uh, the killer. Zero doubt in my mind. He is a public defender standing in a prosecutor's shoes. Why? Because I'm not the only mother that this has happened to. I went to, there was a vigil held actually arranged by Kenyatta Johnson on Ellsworth, which is where Sean lived, um, on the same block as Kenyatta. And we all came together and a woman walked up to me and said, can I hug you? Her name was Diane Williams. And she said, I'm from Moms Bonded by Grief. Um, and we are a mother's group of moms that ch children have been killed in the city of Philadelphia. Gave me a hug, gave me a little bag. Um, they have meetings on Tuesday night. I went to those meetings. And when I started to, you know, I didn't walk into those meetings to talk about Larry Krasner, because you're, you're in a room full of mothers that are grieving and crying, and there's a lot of uh, feelings coming forward and emotion. But as I sat over a few weeks in that meeting, I started to hear these stories about Larry Krasner. So I'm at this, you know, third degree murder charge. I'm upset about it, but I don't really understand it. And I still want to believe that Larry's charging, like he said, this is a classic third degree murder. Was his exact words when we sat in front of him that day. I wanted to believe that he was following a process and we were going to find someone guilty of third degree murder, or at least do our best to do that. The jury will decide. Um, one mother was talking about um, someone walked up and shot her daughter point blank in the chest. Um, all full video, 23 months, pled down. And that wasn't one story, it was story after story, and I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? I mean, again, I have no, I have no background in this. I have no, like, knowledge of where Larry was going. What I would say to you was, I was a person that, frankly, agreed with looking hard at mass incarceration and what was happening as a result of the war on drugs and all of that. So I literally, and I've said this to Larry five times, I literally supported your platform, but your platform didn't have anything to do with reducing sentences of murderers or violent criminals. I thought this was about petty theft, small amounts of marijuana, but he has gone off on a tangent that is in my opinion, it really is going to be anarchy. I mean, this is silly. Police officers say that when they're arrested, they say they want to call Uncle Larry. How sick is that? Linda, 
now that you've gone through this process, are you aware of the difference between first-degree murder and third-degree murder and what it takes to meet the, um, the elements of first-degree murder versus third-degree murder? Yeah, and what I would say to you, again, without a legal background, I would say to you that it is third-degree murder, and that probably was the right charge. And if we stopped right there and we allowed a jury to decide if this was third-degree murder or not, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Um, however, there are a lot of things that have happened over the last 14 months that make no sense to me. And I did stand up after the jury gave their verdict and said to the judge that I said I wanted Larry Krasner arrested today for obstruction of justice, and I still mean that. The question of the day is, with all the injustices, the harassment, and the aggression that we see toward black people every day, do you feel unsafe around white people? And I won't be happy until I see him in handcuffs. And I've probably said that 10 times now. And I'm saying it over and over again because I will not stop until I see him in handcuffs. And my reasons for that are many, <laughs> many. Suppressing evidence, all of the, I will send to you the videos that Michael White posted in August after he killed Sean and in December. Talking about blood in the street, he's a tough guy. Those videos are not the guy that you saw pulled into the courtroom looking like a choir boy. Um, I'll send you those videos. All of his Facebook posts pre-killing Sean and post, none of this was admitted to evidence and I was told because it wasn't admissible. No, so We've never been safe in the presence of white people. There is an increased um, likelihood of police interaction, you know, because of the idea that we're unsafe and that they have to be protected from us. There's the idea that somebody can challenge your ability to just simply exist in a space or actually do you harm, mm -hmm. right? Or, or physically, it's so many of them. And I hate to say, you know, white people, they're just so bad. All the white people. No, it's not that. But the number of white folks that feel comfortable policing the, us themselves. Right. So I think usually you want to understand someone's state of mind when they've killed someone, but apparently not in this case. I totally believe that the prosecutor suppressed evidence. Why do you say that? Because evidence was put forward, Facebook posts, videos, these are all presented by Michael, not presented by anyone else, was not entered as evidence. He talked in his Facebook post about my life would be better if some of my family members were dead. The kid was crying out for help. When you read these, it's dark and it's ugly. It goes to his state of mind. Yeah, does your heart feel bad that no one reached out to this man to give him help? Or maybe they did and he didn't take the help. But all I can say is on that night, that person was looking to kill someone. I saw Larry walking down the street after I learned from the assistant district attorney that they had finally gotten Michael's phone, Michael White's phone. Uh, Michael White lied to the detectives, um, which came up in the trial, about his phone number because he didn't want them to be able to get the stuff off of his phone. Well, they finally did get his phone. Um, Ten days before he killed Sean, he had written in his notes section on his phone, anybody fucks with me, I'm going to cut them. 
I saw Larry walking down the street and I went and I shook his hand and I said, Mr. Krasner, um, there's new evidence that suggests this might be first degree murder because now we have intent. We might have premeditation here. And he said, what evidence? And I said, it's the information that was on Michael's phone. I don't know anything about that evidence. I said, well, I'm asking you to go back to your office to take a look at that evidence and make a determination if this charge is really back to first degree murder. Okay, I'll do that, call my office. I called five straight days. I have the dates and the times. I, of course, never received a phone call back. Um, I pressed and pressed about that being admitted to evidence. That small piece was admitted to evidence, that's all. And I think they just couldn't get away with not providing that. Um, evidence but so it goes on and on and on about evidence that was presented even the woman who took the videotape now I've learned um, was instructed to only answer the questions she was only being asked what was on the video not what she saw prior to turning that video on so there's there's piece after piece after piece the as Michael White testified that there was an Uber driver blocking the car, um, Sean was out of the car talking to that Uber driver. If you listen to the eyewitnesses, there was no yelling, there was no screaming, there was no fight going on. There was, can you move that car around so we can get around? No fight. No one has touched anyone. Michael comes out of nowhere on his bicycle. He gets off his bicycle. The guy in the Uber car comes over and shakes Michael's hand and says, settle down, guy. There's nothing going on here. That's Michael's testimony. Why was he settling Michael down? He's telling him to settle down. That Uber driver got back in his car and left. The prosecutors say they never found that car. Well, I think Uber would know where that car was at 17th and Chancellor at 1030 on July 12th. They didn't want to find that car. Like Why you, wouldn't you? I'd like you to clarify, Linda, because when you talk about suppressing ev evidence, evidence gets into a trial by um, an attorney offering into evidence. Yes. And sometimes the judge says, no. I, that, I, right. Yes, I've learned that. So I'd like you to clarify. Are you saying that some of this evidence just wasn't offered in the trial, or are you telling me that the judge decided it wasn't um, relevant? The, the evidence was never offered. It was never offered to even allow a judge to rule whether it was admissible or not. Now, at any point during the trial, were the prosecutors in contact with you? Did you have a chance to ask what's going on here, what's happening? So I've had quite a bit of interaction with Anthony Voci and Sherelle Dandy, who is, or is the assistant district attorney. Um, let me start by saying, back up, before the trial, the day, the Friday before the trial, I get a call from the assistant district attorney, Larry Krasner needs to speak to you at noon. Okay. We're still at third degree murder at that point. So I get on a conference call with Larry, and Larry says, we've looked at all of the evidence, and we believe that we have a better shot at winning a manslaughter charge than we do a third degree murder charge. So I'm going to file a motion to remove the third degree murder charge. 
And I said to him, I said, Mr. Krasner, manslaughter's already a charge. So I'm asking you to leave the third degree murder charge and allow a jury to decide. Now, he reacts like a crazy man, screaming at me. On the telephone. I, on the telephone. Literally screaming at me, like he's lost his mind. I won't tell you what I said to him because it was a bit inappropriate. But I've never in my professional life ever had someone behave so badly. And I think it was just because I was pushing back. And, you know, I didn't believe his story that he had a better chance of winning manslaughter. I thought that once he saw the evidence, the assistant district attorney and chief of homicide were working on that case for weeks. They were prepping him on Friday morning, which they told me the night before they'd be prepping him. I think when he saw the evidence, he thought third degree murder can be, can be he could be found guilty of third degree murder here. I've got to get the charge off so that we have a worst case scenario of manslaughter. And that's just from a sentencing perspective, because as we all know, his whole goal is to reduce sentences. So how did that conversation end? He said, it is my decision, and I'm filing a motion with the judge. You don't have to agree with me, but it's not your decision. Two minutes later, his chief of homicide and the assistant district attorney called me and said, we're going down in the elevator. We'll call you back in two minutes. That call was an important call. Anthony Voci said, I'm telling you I've talked to this judge in the last week over motions that you talk about about admissibility. Um, this judge is not dropping those charges. He is not going to remove that charge. I'm telling you right now he's not. Sherelle and I are prepared to argue third-degree murder, and that's what we're going to do. And I said, well, that's not what I just heard on the phone call. And he said, well, Larry's filing that motion. We aren't. I said, okay, well, who's going to argue the motion when we get there on Monday morning? He said, that's to be determined. He's upset. He's shaking. His voice is shaking. Um, and he says to me, this case means a lot to me. After meeting the people, the character witnesses, and going through all of, all of this, Linda, it means a lot to me. And I'm telling you, if the judge asks me, I'm telling you on my kid's life, his words, as I reminded him, that I will tell the judge we should not drop the third-degree murder charge. Now, is this theater by Anthony Voci? Did he really mean it? It's very hard for me to tell. It was the heat of the moment. Both of these two have been working tirelessly on this case, and now their boss came in at the 11th hour and changed the strategy. I don't know what to say about that. Then when we got to court on Monday morning, when the motion was to be heard by the judge, if you read the newspaper, the newspaper would say to you that the judge ruled on that motion. What happened when we got in there was the judge says we have this motion to drop third-degree murder. But my understanding is that there's been a stipulation between the Commonwealth and the Public Defenders Association. And I'm thinking, what? They agreed through stipulation to drop the third degree. The judge has nothing to rule on at that point. They're allowed to do that. It's totally at Larry's discretion to make a deal with the Public Defenders Association. And that's what he did. 
the judge on the trial started on a Tuesday or, I'm sorry on a Thursday on Friday the judge after the jury left there was an argument about something and the judge looked over to the Commonwealth and he said you dropped the third-degree murder charge you have made this much harder to prove because of the intent I didn't know what that meant but with manslaughter, I guess you have to show intent. With third-degree murder, you don't. That's at least the way that it was explained to me in a very simplistic way. The judge went off on the prosecution because they wanted him to put a charge in that basically was like a murder charge when he's charging the jury. And he said, you took murder off, and now you're asking me to put a charge in? How does that work? You know, so he was visibly upset and probably out of character for him because I actually thought he was a very good judge and I thought that he was very fair. Um, I think that Larry planned this the whole way along. My understanding now is there was a, two, there was a meeting two weeks before that Friday when Larry spoke to me with the public defenders group, and they had already come to a deal that that's what he was going to do. Now, why would you wait till the 11th hour? I don't know. News, whatever. I don't know. I've heard show after show after show after show after show about black folk having to forgive. And honestly, I, I'm a Christian and I do get it. But as a black man, I am just sick and a specific word tired of us always having having to forgive. You never hear shows about Jews forgiving Nazis. If it's a Nazi had done it, there would never be a show like this for Jews forgiving, forgiving Nazis. If, if, if it was Bin Laden or somebody, we would never have white people out there wanting to hug and forgive Bin Laden. You never have these shows about that. It's only when black people get murdered and killed or, or are aggressed. We have these shows, and I'm kind of tired. I, you know what I wish we had? I wish we had a Nat Turner squad to go out there and take care of everybody else that got away with it. And let somebody else forgive what? Let somebody else have the chance to forgive. Because so it's always being us. I'm tired of it. Man, I was, I was kind of blown away when she was talking about all the other women she met. They all told the same story she did. The murder. The indifference. A lot of them were going, yeah, we liked Krasner. We voted for him. We liked this platform. We thought there were too many black people in prison for smoking a joint and petty theft, shoplifting. Yeah, they went in and stole a Hershey bar, and they gave him 20 years in jail. And now we got this DA taking the charges down so low. But okay, but uh, okay, what? You know, there might even actually be an alternate alternative explanation that's way worse than what you just heard here. Consider this just for a second. What if Krasner played it straight? What if he was telling the truth the whole time? What if he said, you know what? We can't get a conviction on murder one. Can't get a conviction on murder three. Let's go down to involuntary manslaughter. That should be easy to get a conviction on because we've got a dead body. What if Krasner was telling the truth? What if he knew that the juries, the Bronx juries in Philadelphia are now so polluted with so many black people that white victims just don't have a chance in the black, with black jurors anymore? I've done that story here many times guy in Georgetown University named Paul Dunbar. He used to be a federal prosecutor. Now he's the hero of Washington, D.C. because he wrote an article in the Washington Post that told black jurors 
that if you're in a jury box, and yes, you should definitely get in a jury box whenever you can. If you're sitting in a jury box and that person at the defendant table is black and you think he's there because of white racism, oh no, you do not have to convict him. That's racial jury nullification. MSNBC has these guys on all the time saying the same thing. But it's not like you even have to tell them. It's called Bronx juries. Black people tend not to vote to convict black people. Chargers, yeah, there have been, see, we talked about this and don't make the black kids angry. We got into all the studies done about it. We got into all the people talking about it, documenting it. This is just the latest case. And now all these women are meeting in this room blaming Krasner. Okay, blame him. Sure, I don't like him either. I think he's the devil. What about these juries? They, we let them off? Okay, I know Krasner suppressed evidence. I get that. They let that black person off. Killing a white guy. Why did they do that? It's not the first time that has happened. We documented four of those in 10 days in a podcast last week. Now this mother is coming forward and she won't go away. I just hope she has the tools. I just hope she has the cojones, the stones, the testicles to say the right thing at the right time. Hope she does. And the right thing at the right time is that the fellas in Philadelphia, on juries, off juries, are not really that into white people anymore up there. Maybe they never were. For a white person to find themselves in a courtroom looking at the bot pictures of the body of their dead son. I like that. And then the guy who killed him in cold blood gets to walk out to the cheers and and gratitude of his family. That's what you know, that's what the world we are living in today. Okay, so you may or may not live, want to live in that world. I'm not sure. But if you're a white person living in Philly, is that the town you want to live in? You see anybody stand up and go, "Oh my god, that what a what a what a abortion of justice that was. Did you see anybody stand up and say that? Yet we have kids on the bus the, in the subway stations of Brooklyn attacking cops, biting cops, threatening cops, yelling racial epithets at cops, attacking cops, and another cop wades in and punches one of those little punks in the face, and every single political person in Philadelphia and New York stands up and goes, oh my God, I can't believe I just saw that. Nobody stands up for this Schellenegger business kid. Nobody will stand up for his mom all because they just don't want to make the black kids angry. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Don't. I like that. Don't. I like that. Don't. Come on. Don't make the black kids angry. I like that. Don't. I like that. I like that. Don't. Ah, yeah. Don't.